Listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Energy Program, and your host for this week. In May, Iraq held parliamentary elections to form a new government. The results have been highly contested, and the future of the Iraqi government and the impact of that future on the energy sector remain uncertain. Here to help us make sense of what's happened since the elections and what to expect is Rod Al-Qadiri, Senior Director at the BCG Center for Energy Impact and Senior Associate with CSIS. Rod, thanks for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Rod, for those of us who are not following the day-to-day sort of uh, uh, changes in Iraqi politics. What were the main takeaways from the elections? Uh, this was election, an election both in its build-up and in its outcome that was a change from the past, a change from the pattern that we've seen since the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime in 2003. The biggest takeaway out of all of it was actually what didn't happen rather than what did. And that was the turnout was so low. Officially, turnout was put at 44.5%. There had been some speculation and some reports that turnout was actually as low as in the 30% mark. Is it usually much higher? It's usually been higher. It's been up in the 60 to 70%. You've seen a gradual fall off. But there's a sense of alienation. There's a sense that this reflects a frustration amongst the Iraqi population, amongst the electorate, that really elections don't matter, that the the, the elections simply bring back and the polls simply bring back the same people um, who share up power between them. And some of the events after that have have shown it. But I think it also was evident in in, in some of the campaigns that went on and and indeed in terms of some of the results. Um, What you saw was... Muqtada Sada's supported party, Sa'arun, get the most seats in what is going to be a very fractured parliament. Um, but he came out on top and he ran a protest um, a protest campaign. And that, again, was indicative of, of how he sought to appeal to Iraqis and the fact that the Iraqis that did vote, actually, that message resonated with them. Um, there is a sense that the ethno-sectarian identity politics that has dominated Iraq since 2003 and that has been the foundation of the political system and that has really played to the benefit of established parties um, isn't delivering for the population. You have corruption, you have maladministration, governance is poor, rule of law isn't particularly respected, and the population seems to be fed up. And so those that did vote Mm -hmm. um, really sort of have been calling for a shift to issue politics, a shift to a government that delivers on issues rather than just simply carves up the pie on the basis of identity, on the basis of an ethno-sectarian formula. So, but um, were there clear winners and losers that came out of the election? Um, there weren't clear winners and losers. I say it was a fractured campaign. The You've seen a a gradual fragmentation of the ethno-sectarian blocs, really, over the last 15 years anyway. Um, But in this election, that that fragmentation reached its its post-2003 height. So you had a number of different Shia parties that competed against each other for votes. You had a number of Sunni parties that competed against each other, and similarly with the Kurds. Now, in some senses, that was preparing for the post-election government formation process. Essentially, it was uh, an internal referendum 
in some ways amongst the different constituencies about who they liked most, which parties most represented them, and, and a desire by those parties to to be able to have more of a say in, again, the post-election carve-up of the government. Um, but I think, you know, as as you move forwards, the question will ultimately be, does that matter? The question will ultimately be, are these parties just going to come back together? Is this just, again, a negotiating card that you play? Um, the big question for the Iraqi people, however, will be, whether this government actually represents anything different and whether it can deliver anything different. Um, Iraq's gone through a generational change. Mm -hmm. And as much as anything else, this, this election reflected that. For those leaders in power, you know, their reference point, their political maturity, their political awareness came about in opposition to Saddam Hussein's regime and the repression of that regime and the repression that they faced. For large parts of the population in a country where 65% you know, of people are under the age of 30, 75% are under the age of 35, if you think about, about that in terms of the electorate, what that means is that you know, somebody who is you know, presently 35 was 20 when the regime fell. Their political awareness, their political reference point are what Iraq's post-2003 leaders did. And those leaders are clearly being found wanting. So you have a you have a disconnect. So we're several months away or a couple months away from the election. How has government formation gone the process so far? Well, government formation has taken as long as anticipated. It is in many ways a similar process to the ones that we've seen in the past. Um, the the Sa'arun party, the Sadrists, sought to use their plurality um, as a way of dominating the post-election um, agenda and failed to do so. I mean, they, they haven't been able to rally all of the parties around them. Um, and there's been a, a, a counter-movement, essentially, by the old established parties, the ones that you know have power and prerogative to defend. Um, to you know, create a broad coalition again that is an all-inclusive government and where you have no opposition and fundamentally where they all get represented and they can, they can protect themselves. Um, you've had that process, which was always bound to take time. But you've had a second process that's gone on in parallel, which has been uh, um, criticism of the election protests and protests uh, sorry, the election process and protests that have taken place, which le has led to a manual recount yeah. in certain parts of the country. And that's kind of created a, a, a separate timetable. You can't move ahead with forming a government until the Supreme Court ratifies the results. The Supreme Court can't ratify the results until this recount takes place. Um, and so everything has been somewhat delayed by that. But that is... You know, that process in many ways has been a combination of, I think, allegations of, of fraud, particularly in the KRG and in the, um, a number of the Sunni provinces. It didn't really impact the Shia parties and, and the center and south of Iraq very early on. But, you know, they got caught up in it. 
And so, you know, there's a, there's a desire to wait and see what the, and there's, there's a necessity to wait and see what those results are. But in parallel, you've had these negotiations taking place, which look a lot like the negotiations of the past. Mm. And does it, um, is the timeline for the formation of government, it's, as you said, sort of dependent on the recount and the ratification of the results. But is there also, what is the, is there substance behind the negotiation of the new government? What are issues does it it sort of anchor upon, or do we not know that yet? We know what's being said publicly. And publicly, the various parties have tried to at least give a nod rhetorically to this notion that good governance is important, that moving away from identity politics is important. And you've had protests in Iraq that began in early July um, in the South that were targeted very much at the poor performance of past governments, demands for change, demands for reform, better welfare, better services, and which very openly attacked the established parties, not just in terms of chanting at protests, but actually in terms of attacking party offices in various provinces in southern Iraq. So you had a clear sense of the anger and frustration that exists, that resides within the Iraqi population. And it is at the core constituency of the Islamist Shia parties that have dominated Iraqi government since 2003. But at the, so there has been a, you know, there, there have been circumstances that have forced the various parties to pay lip service to the issue of reform and the issue of better administration. But the reality seems to be behind the scenes, it is a debate over who should be the prime minister, which party should take what, what share of the system? How do you apportion the different offices of state? Um, and certainly um, amongst some of the established parties, Shia, Kurdish and others, this sense that you have to preserve the existing system at all costs because that benefits them. There's no move towards something that you know, really does smack of a, a, a government that is going to be based on a clear set of um, policy principles, or indeed that is going to allow probably what Iraq needs most, which is the emergence of a loyal opposition that can hold governments accountable in parliament and through the process of elections. So can you, uh, do you have a sense of what you think the outcome will be and what the government will look like? And what, what, are, the options, what are the options on the table? What does that mean for the energy sector? I think you'd have to be a very brave person to guess exactly what an Iraqi <laughs> government brave. has looked like. Iraqi <laughs> politics can throw, can throw wild cards. But I think the way that it is going, the way the process is going, is that in this battle between issue and identity and in this generational battle and this battle between you know, new priorities for government and emphasis on effectiveness, emphasis on institution building, emphasis on strategic policies, etc. Vice preserving the status quo, Mm -hmm. the status quo remains the the issue that these parties are are most focused on. Um, You know, the reality is that no matter how widespread protests are in Iraq, they are not yet organized at a level that threatens the power and that threatens um, the future of what is a green zone elite, an elite that sort of was handed power in 2003 and that has protected it ever since. They control the money. They control 
the 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 the, the uh, access to use of force, um, and don't need to be accountable, and have clearly shown themselves willing to be unaccountable when it serves their interest. So that that status quo uh, mentality, I think, still exists, which points towards a again a broad-based government. You know, Emphasis again, or at least a, a, an effort to try and emphasize consensus in decision making, that it will be a widespread coalition and that ultimately it will, it may tout itself as being representatives of different parties, but behind the scenes will be a way of adapting the ethno sectarian model as opposed to doing away with it, which is what a lot of Iraqis might think. For the energy sector, you know, that means in some senses more of the same. I mean, you know, what successive governments in, in Iraq have, have failed to do is really be able to tackle issues of infrastructure, issues of you know, policy making, issues of to, related to sanctity of contract, etc. Um, and that has been down to institutional weakness. It's not just the politics that, that overplays it, but the country has never really rebuilt institutions sufficiently since 2003 to be able to operate effectively. So what you're going to get is all of those problems throwing themselves up. You know, if you had looked at the Iraqi sector 10 years ago and said, what are the challenges? What are the things that are going to cap production? You said it was a lack of human resources. It was the decision-making structure. It was infrastructure and, you know, to a certain extent, access to money. Um, all of those issues are still there. I think we have an additional element that's playing out that's actually going to complicate this further, which is that the Iraqis are showing growing signs of resource nationalism. Um, there is an emphasis on rebuilding the national oil company as a separate institution. Um, there's an emphasis on wanting to tighten what are already pretty tight terms. Um, there is a desire to hold companies more accountable for costs, um, which appears to be an Iraqi belief that, you know, the, the, that their foreign partners are gold plating mm -hmm. the, the, um, the, their, their projects, as opposed to recognizing that, you know, there are a variety of issues that, you know, that increase costs in Iraq and that companies have their own standards of, you know, HSE, their own standards of operations that they want to meet. <coughs> So as you, as you go through that, I mean, there's, there's clearly tension that's building. It's showing itself up in terms of sanctity of contract. Um, but, you know, from, a, from a, an Iraqi point of view or from the point of view of what the Iraqis need to achieve, um, it is dealing with some of these fundamental issues that have put a ceiling on production, which relate not as much to politics as it is just how does the sector work? Does it... Does it change the impasse with, with the Kurdish region at all, the sort of inability to come to agreement about how production happens and revenue sharing happens? Does it change that situation at all? If you watch Iraq over the last 15 years, there have been a variety of points in time when people have suggested that a deal could be done between Baghdad and Erbil, and it hasn't been. Now, you know, it reflects a, a, a fundamental ambiguity that has dogged stability in Iraq more broadly since 2003, which is what's the nature of federalism. This goes back to a battle over sovereignty. This goes back to different visions of the state that have never been reconciled um, and to compromises that neither side has been willing to make when they have 
been strong. They have refused to compromise um, out of a feeling they didn't need to. When they have been the weaker party, they have refused to compromise out of a feeling that they will lose more than they should. Um, and we're in another one of those, those periods. So it goes back to politics. The Kurds, particularly since the referendum on independence in September of last year, I have lost ground to, to Baghdad. They're, the Kurdish hopes are that the referendum will be you know, recognized internationally and that would fundamentally change the balance of power and would provide an avenue to eventual independence um, didn't materialize. And you know, subsequent to that, Baghdad and security forces, I mean, the federal government's security forces were able to recapture territory or producing territory in and around Kirkuk, which robbed the Kurds of access that they had had to significant volumes of oil, 150, 200,000 barrels a day of production. Um, you know, given the, the, the fiscal pressures that Iraq faces, given the protests, etc., you would think that, and those protests that extend to Kurdistan, that you would think that both sides would see at a certain point that there is virtue in compromise. Mm. But that doesn't appear to have, have reached the point. Oil, and but that broader issue of federalism, is always brought in at the time that governments are formed. Um, it's a negotiating card that the, the Kurds seek to bring to the table. And you know, the Kurds have tended to overestimate their negotiating hand and overestimate how willing Arab Iraqis are going to be to compromise with them. I think we're heading towards something like that again, which suggests that you, know, you might find temporary fixes. But what Iraq needs to do to sort out its oil issues or that particular oil issue is to go back and relook at the political compact that, was, you know, that became the basis for the, the, the Constitution in 2005. That relates to a whole bunch of other issues that are out there as well, again, that go to mismanagement of, of, of the country. Um, and they're not willing to do that, or at least they haven't reached a point of desperation on either side where they're willing to do that. So, you know, as, as you look forward, I think this issue of Kirkuk, this issue of production in Kirkuk, the challenges to Kurdish exports are likely to persist until it you know, is incorporated into part of a bigger political deal that Iraqi leaders talk about from time to time. The younger generation of Iraqi leaders who, I think to be fair to them, have seen the warning signs of the perpetuation of the current system there and, and have warned, you know, have been willing to point to them and say, we need change. Those guys might do something about it, given the chance. But this generation of leadership that's there, the, the older generation of leadership, it appears to be sort of wedded to, as I say, a, a, a vision of the world that is, you know, partly pre-2003 and partly very early post-2003. And until, while they remain, I think the chances of any significant change, absent some massive explosion, some Iraqi version of an Arab Spring is unlikely. What about... Um how Iraq plays within the current OPEC context, their production levels, those sorts of things. Do you think this the the government uh, formation and the outcome of the election has any impact both internally in terms of how much they're going to produce, absent what you said earlier about just the you know limits uh, that come from mismanagement of the system and the, the bottlenecks that have been there all, all along? Does it change the politics of how they interact in the region at all? Um, I think in terms of the oil, I mean, that's clearly something that, that various various players are, are looking at and various external parties are looking at just simply because of policy towards Iran. 
I mean, Iraq increasingly both in Washington, but actually in the region as well, is seen within the context of competition with Iran, the battle with Iran, um, and, you know, in, in a potentially very destabilizing fashion. Um, but when you look at OPEC, you know, this would seem to be a moment where Iraq, you know, would have an opportunity to increase production. Iraq's relationship with OPEC over the last few years has been tetchy. Um, while they have been willing to, to, to comply with OPEC, officially comply with OPEC numbers, um, the actual reality of what Iraq is really producing, um, I think, has been open to question. And that compliance has been as much a product of some interesting accounting for barrels, but also the politics of the Kurdish issue as much as anything else. So while Iraq has you know, cut production, um, the question really was, you know, beyond the issue of Kurdistan and, and exports that may have been double counted, you know, how much of that cut has taken place. But, you know, this would, again, this would be, this would be one of those times when the Iraqis, absent, I think, some of their political problems between Baghdad and, and, and um, Erbil, would be in a position to bring on new barrels pretty quickly and have a market for them. And in doing so, that would have political benefit, at least with you know, some of the Gulf states and with the United States. Question is, are they going to be able to do that? And you know, there is also the question of dealing with a very large eastern neighbor that is not without its influence in the country, Iran, and that you know has that influence extended well beyond the sort of the traditional stereotype of the Islamist Shia parties. I mean, Iranian influence is you know both hard and soft and extends all the way from Kurdistan. You know, and right out, you know, realistically, to the to the western borders and the areas that are traditionally seen as Sunni. So it's not just a Shia a Shia issue. So Iraq finds itself in an awkward position. So in terms of OPEC, no, I don't think you're going to see much again until you have a, a deal with with the KRG. Um, in terms of the region as a whole and the politics, Iraq is about to go through a very very awkward period. I think just simply because as Tension is ratcheted up with Iran, both within the region and you know externally with Iran and U.S. with Iran. Iraq becomes a, a you know becomes a frontline state, and Iraq becomes a, a, a proxy playground that all parties have shown that they are willing to abuse if, it, if it's in the interest of of, of their own political goals um, moving forwards. What does that mean for how the U.S. plays in the region, especially vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with Iraq? Well, I think the U.S. relationship with Iraq has 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 evolved and transformed and you know the level to which Iraq doesn't matter I mean um, you know, this was a country where you know I can remember 15 years ago you know the US and and the UK and other allies were choosing governments you know who became prime minister who was in a government was almost an issue that that the US had a veto over um, that isn't the case anymore nor is there the interest in Washington apparently Washington's interest in Iraq and, and how government formation plays out, and Iraq and how its oil sector develops, is, pri is, is principally a product of, of U.S. policy towards Iran and what it wants to see happen in Iran. Mm -hmm. There are times when you get the feeling that, you know, as far as the U.S. is concerned, as long as the next Iraqi prime minister is willing to implement sanctions against Iran, that'll be good enough, that that is the, the basic measure. So the U.S. can be disruptive, and the U.S. obviously through its through its officials seeks to play a, a prominent role, but it's it's it doesn't have the leverage it once once had, nor does it have the appetite and the the bandwidth 
to, to focus on Iraq. So I, I suspect, again, this is going to be rather destabilizing for Iraq just simply because decisions aren't going to be taken through the prism of what is best for Iraq. The decisions are going to be taken through a very narrow prism of what serves U.S. interests vis-a-vis Iran. Um, And from the standpoint of Iraqi leaders, that is something that I don't think they fully absorbed yet, but when they do, it's going to be extremely worrying. Well, it sounds like there's still a lot to wait and watch for in Iraq, both on the political side, the geopolitical side and the energy side. So you'll be well employed. (laughs) Absolutely. It will keep me in business for some time, which is which is a good thing. You know, the, the the business of misery. But no, I mean, Iraq is Iraq is far from at the end of the road. But I think going back to your initial question about what's different and, you know, how one would sum up all of this is that the countries at a crossroads, it, it's, it's the danger of the collapse of I mean, what are already very weak institutions and them being replaced by armed factions. If you talk to Iraqi officials 18 months ago, their huge fear was that in the course of fighting ISIS, you were empowering militias that were outside the control of the state. And their fear was that in fighting ISIS, you were promoting Kurdish independence. And and there were all of the structural factors there. Mm -hmm. You could point to them very clearly. I mean, just the battle lines in Iraq, the internal battle lines for that fight, were along the lines of internal borders that that could have become hard. The, the, the failure of the, the referendum, or at least the, the, the pushback against the referendum, the re, you know, recapture of Kirkuk, and the ability of the state to deal with ISIS without necessarily handing over power to the militias has given people, I think, um, undue solace. Mm-hmm. Because all of those structural factors are still there. All of them are. All of them could, under the right circumstances, reemerge. You know, we talk about Iraq as you know a strong unified state now. Literally, eleven months since it came, you know, within a hair's breadth of part of the country deciding it wanted independence, mm-hmm. and the leaders of that movement not really having changed their mind, just recognizing that the circumstances may not have been right. Mm-hmm. We are. You know, only a few months away from militia control of large swathes of territory where the Iraqi security forces, you know, struggle to to impose order. So, you know, none of those things have gone away. And I think there's a tendency to breathe a sigh of relief, look at them and say, none of that happened. But I've had this conversation endlessly with with, clients who said, well, a year ago, 12 months ago, 24 months ago, you said Iraq, Iraq was on the verge of collapse. I'm like... You had a referendum by the Kurds that said, we don't want to be part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, if the U.S. had changed its mind, if Turkey had changed its mind, just those two countries, you would have an entirely different dynamic in Iraq right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't necessarily look at Washington and see a level of commitment to a unified Iraq that was there sort of months ago. And if, you know, a... a a fragmented Iraq serves the purpose of dealing with with Iran. I'm not sure that this administration would necessarily put a a priority or maintain a priority on unified Iraq. So I think you know all of those factors are under there. But you know, charting that into what, what it means for a clear future is very difficult. And the other side is Anthony Shadid, God rest his soul, who was 
without doubt, one of the finest um, observers of Iraqi politics. I remember having a coffee with him in Baghdad one time, and he said, you know, the problem is that Iraqi leaders and U.S. leaders confuse patience for acquiescence. Mm -hmm. Said so the Iraqi people are patient, but that doesn't mean that they're acquiescing to the system. Mm -hmm. And if that patience goes and it can be organized, what happens then? Because this political elite doesn't have a set of policy measures, policy tools, institutional tools to deal with serious um, protests and serious demonstrations, absence the use of force. And we've seen elsewhere in the world what kind of, you know, what kind of vicious circle that can take you into. Over 15 years of, of looking at Iraq, you know, post Saddam Hussein, I think all analysts have tended to sort of be very, um, very apocalyptic in terms of their prognostations and then suddenly find that actually muddled through was fine. What they missed was that the um, trajectory of that muddle through was one of decline. Mm. And the question is, how close are we to a cliff? Mm. And the election, you know, the, 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 the result or how the population dealt with elections, what that says about their feelings towards Iraqi leaders, the protests that have happened and how this government puts itself together will be a very clear set of signposts as to how close we are to that cliff and whether you know we can avoid going over it. And what would the cliff, uh, just to get a better sense of what you're talking about, a cliff in terms of lack of support for the government, protests, dissolution? Again, if, if you had, what, what, what Iraqi protesters do not have is, is mass organization. Mm -hmm. The Sadrists provided it in 2015 and 2016 when you had massive demonstrations across the country. Um, and they pulled back. Similarly, in the KRG, you've had ongoing demonstrations for a number of years. But the you know, established parties that have a monopoly over power there, again, you know, the balance of power is in their favor and have been able to at least keep a cap on it. The question is, does something change that makes keeping a cap on it impossible? Or where at least keeping a cap on it requires a level of repression that starts to fray at the basic fabric of the state. Um, that, that fabric is, has frayed somewhat, but it hasn't, gotten to, it hasn't gotten to a point yet where, again, you would look at it and say, you know, collapse is inevitable. But the danger will always be that, you know, the state starts to, the state starts to retreat, and in its place you get a set of factions that, you know, are armed, that will fight, and, again, have very different views um, of what the future of Iraq should look like, and indeed questions about whether Iraq should exist as a state in the future. Mm -hmm. And that genie, if let out of the bottle, um, will be a very, very difficult one to deal with. Thank you very much for taking some time to talk through the outcome of the elections, where we stand, the implications for the energy sector. It sounds like an issue uh, that we'll have to watch for some time to come. My great pleasure. It's always nice talking to you, Red. Take care. Thank you. Again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program, and thanks for listening to Energy 360.